Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. I'm super excited to be speaking with the lawyer therapist, Doron Gold, for a second time on the podcast. Back in the fall of 2020, Doron and I talked about mental health and wellness in the legal profession. Our focus today is the recent Canadian study on wellness in the legal profession. Welcome back to the XL Legal Podcast, Doron. Thank you, Shelley. It's so nice to be back. Well, thanks so much for being here. How about getting us started by introducing yourself? In a nutshell, my background is that I was a lawyer for about 10 years, back between 1996 and 2006. And I... uh, steadily morphed into a mental health professional, first by becoming a personal coach, working as a case manager at the previous lawyer assistance program, and then eventually doing a master's of social work uh, about 10 years ago, which led me to uh, work as a therapist over the last number of years. My uh, focus is legal professionals, although not exclusively, uh, and that includes lawyers and paralegals and law students and paralegal students and judges, but also people from other walks of life as well. And I understand that you were very much involved in the formulation of the National Wellness Study. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, The Federation of Law Societies of Canada and the Canadian Bar Association commissioned this study uh, using researchers from the uh, University of Sherbrooke who had done a study of lawyers in Quebec previously, so they had some, some good experience on that. They brought together a steering committee of people in the legal profession who were also interested parties, stakeholders, and also experts in mental health and the legal profession. And so I was lucky enough to be included in that group. And that steering committee was involved all along the way. And we still are because there is still work to be done on that study. Um, formulating ideas, editing things, uh, making sure that along the way, it reflects the reality of life on the ground for legal professionals, uh, keeping it up to date and contemporary, and keeping it... Um, Uh, also aligned with our values. Uh, And so I think uh, we ended up doing a pretty good job, all things considered. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's such a comprehensive study. Uh, And you mentioned that it's still ongoing. Are there different parts to the study? Is there something more that we should be looking forward to uh, hearing about? Absolutely. So far, what's happened is there has been a uh, quantitative analysis, which was released with with, with comprehensive data, which you've seen. There was also a list of recommendations put out uh, late last year uh, based on that data. There is now ongoing uh, qualitative analysis happening, interviews, etc., to drill down on some of the issues that were illuminated by the study. And so we're going to get some even richer information from that, uh, that qualitative analysis that's going to be upcoming. Fantastic. And I got something that I didn't, I wasn't aware of. I didn't realize there was sort of that next stage of the study, having read the findings, as you said, um, late in 2022 and the recommendations, I th- kind of thought that was it. So glad to hear that there's more to come. Perhaps we can just look at what were some of the main findings in that sort of first phase of the, uh, of the study. Right. In terms of, in terms of uh, quantitative analysis, um, I'll go through some of the the top line numbers because, and I really do recommend that people go to the Federation of Law Societies of Canada, flsc.ca, to to get a copy of the actual uh, comprehensive report. 
and the recommendations as well, because there are some very, very detailed analysis about very detailed and specific situations, workplaces, demographics of people, etc. It really did drill down and cross-reference a lot of things as well, which is very, very useful for um, for for bringing it forward and, and using it tangibly in in the, in, in the legal workplace. Um, the report itself was based on uh, approximately 7,300 legal professionals who responded to a lengthy and anonymous survey. Um, and what they came up with in terms of top lines was, for instance, the general concept of psychological distress. Uh, overall, about 59.4% of legal professionals experience psychological dis- distress. And as you might imagine, there are certain groups that are of more concern. So women legal professionals, it was actually 63.7%. Younger lawyers with less than 10 years experience, 70.8%, which is not entirely surprising because being a new lawyer is inherently stressful. Legal professionals who identify as LGBTQ+, 69.3%. So that's some really high numbers of people who are suffering as they practice in law that we need to be aware of as employers, as colleagues, as ourselves, part of the power of a study like this is the normalization and validation of people's experiences so they don't feel like they're the only one, like they're the anomaly and like there's something uniquely wrong with them. It helps to know that there is a, there's a general experience that sometimes these problems are not individual but systemic and therefore uh, it calls for systemic uh, um, solutions as well. On specific mental health issues like depression, overall 28.6% of the professionals that uh, took the survey noted moderate to severe depression. Uh, the general public number is 15% as of 2020. So that tells you something about the, the considerably higher levels of, uh, of depression amongst legal professionals as compared to the general population. It's almost double. Um, and again, certain groups much higher. So it was 28.6% generally amongst lawyers, 36.4% amongst lawyers under 10 years of experience, indigenous legal professionals, 33.3%. And so uh, it's helpful to know not only the general number, but also the number as it affects individuals in certain identifiable groups, equity-seeking groups, so that we know if we have a problem in the profession that needs to be addressed. The overall number of it for anxiety was 35.7% as compared to only 13% in the general population, but it was 42.6% amongst women mm-hmm. and 45.2% amongst professionals with fewer than 15 years experience. In fact, people in private practice, just a little bit higher than the, than, than the baseline, 36.8%. So some very, very clear examples of the higher incidence of depression, anxiety, psychological distress generally in law as compared to in the general population and in certain demographics group demographic groups even more than amongst the general uh, population of legal profession and the one other i think important statistic that they came up with was that overall 24.1% of legal professionals reported having suicidal thoughts in their during their practice wow that's almost a quarter of legal professionals. Now, keep in mind, suicidal thoughts does not mean uh, being acutely suicidal. A lot of people think the idea of not being here, the idea of uh, they are in distress, they are in pain, and it would, it, wouldn't it be nice if I could turn off the pain? That's for some people just a kind of a, 
a fantasy in their mind that never really materializes any kind of tangible intention to kill oneself. But it is very much notable uh, that 24.1% of legal professionals have even had suicidal thoughts. That's compared to 11.8% of Canadians generally. Mm. And even in the US study in 2016, it was 11.5% uh, having, having had those thoughts. Now, I wonder uh, if some of that is as a result of the fact that these conversations are happening more openly now, that right. there's, while there is still stigma, there is less stigma. And so perhaps people feel like uh, it is safer even to admit to themselves that these are things that they struggle with. Um, and I should note, by the way, in some populations, that number, as you might imagine, was higher. In the government not-for-profit sector, it was 272 so, so we, we need to pay attention to these things so that we are aware and can address them in ourselves, in the contexts in which we work, uh, and especially for certain groups. I mean, there, the lawyers who identify as non-binary, the number with suicidal ideation was 61.9%. Wow. Wow. That's an emergency to me. Yeah. Yeah. On that point where people are starting to talk a little bit more openly about um, these subjects and issues. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting, one of the findings is there's a low level of confidence in uh, organizational and law society assistance programs. So you having been involved with the Ontario uh, Law Society's assistance program, what do you make of that? Frankly, I'm not surprised. I should clarify, but we're not clarify, but at least make sure it's clear. I, I'm no longer with the member assistance program in Ontario. I'm on my own in private practice. But uh, it is an area of interest for me because I, I was in the lawyer assistance field, first with OLAP, the previous program, and then with the MAP re most recently. Um, and it was always something that was, to me, uh, a passion to be aware that there are people out there who are struggling, as this data confirms, and to be aware that they're not always as, as, as aware of what's available for help. And here we have assistance programs which don't cost anything, which are provided, which are comprehensive, and yet people are often hesitant to use them. And uh, the study uh, did illuminate some of the reasons why people are hesitant. Sometimes it's simply because they don't think that their issue is serious enough. Uh, legal professionals are, are, are notable for minimizing their own distress, feeling like you know they should just suck it up and deal and not make a big deal out of such things. So they will often uh, just minimize how they feel and therefore feel like there isn't, uh, there, th there isn't any need to ask for help. But also sometimes they don't think they can be helped. They, they are, as I've heard once described, terminally unique. They, they feel as though maybe you know, there are other people with depression who could be helped, but they have a special brand that can't be helped. And so they should just try to figure it out on their own. Um, some of it is about shame. That was about 10.7% of people. Shame about requiring support. 17.7% feared what colleagues would think if they knew that they were asking for help. Some of them just didn't know enough about the lawyer assistance program. And this is true across Canada. This is data across Canada. And uh, almost 40% were worried that the lawyer assistance program would disclose their personal information to their regulator because often these, these programs are funded by the regulators. Now, I need to say unequivocally, that is not the case. Lawyer assistance programs are built uh, uh, quite deliberately to ensure that personal information is protected and that, um, that 
that no one, never mind just the regulator, but colleagues or frankly, people within the assistance program itself don't talk to each other about clients. Confidentiality is, is essential to programs like that. But that fear exists. Legal professionals want to protect their, their reputations. They want to protect their license. They want to protect even just their identity. And if they're starting out by feeling some shame or, or, or by minimizing their own condition, they're going to hesitate to ask for help, unfortunately. And uh, that's why over the last 16 or so, almost 17 years, uh, part of my passion has been to demystify these ideas, to let people know it is safe to be a human being and a lawyer and a law student and to seek help, especially in a profession with, as we've described today, much higher incidences of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, et cetera, burnout than the general population, but a much lower inclination to ask for help. That's a, that's a gap that has always been a struggle, always been frustrating, and something that myself and many others have been working to, to narrow. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, while you're talking, I'm thinking about that uh, wonderful online program that you co-authored that's on the CBA, the Canadian Bar Association's uh, website. After you and I spoke and setting up um, setting up this interview today, you reminded me of the program. And so I went and I, I did it. And there's so much wonderful information there. And it's totally anonymous. And like no one knows that you're uh, participating unless, of course, you wanted to get CPD credits for it. Uh, but the other thing is just the sharing, the open sharing. I think there are about six lawyers who were sharing their stories. Wow, that was so incredibly powerful. That idea of sharing testimonials, uh, I have found over the years to be top two or three most powerful interventions for breaking stigma. Mm-hmm. Especially when you've got someone like Orlando da Silva, the former president of the CBA, who at the time to- or the OBA, who at the time was the president, you can't make the old-fashioned argument that weak people suffer with these things, but strong lawyers don't. When the president of the OBA tells you that he struggled with depression his entire life, when the president of the CBA at the time, Michelle Hollins, talks about her depression at the time, these open conversations. Uh, take the air out of the stigma. They allow for people to realize there's nothing uniquely wrong with them. There's nothing uniquely weak with them. And I'm using the word weak in the way that others use it, not in the way I use it. To me, weak is when I can't open a jar of pickles. That's me being weak. Uh, Weak is not the inability to cope because the inability to cope sometimes is part of a human's life experience. But having that as part of of the course allowed us to add in not just information, which I think we made it pretty comprehensive. We included information about the unique challenges that legal professionals face and, and, and some of the obstacles they face uh, in going through their lives in the profession, uh, some of the impact of that, uh, some of the services and help that is offered, as well as an entire section that I was very uh, proud to author about proactive wellness, proactive tips uh, uh, it, to to cope better, to be healthier, to feel more well as one navigates through a legal career. Um, and all of that, as you said, doesn't cost anything. You don't even have to be a CBA member to take the course. It offers CPD credit in many jurisdictions across Canada. 
Um, it takes about an hour to an hour and a quarter uh, to to take. Uh, and um, we what we tried to do, as I think you noticed, was you can watch the testimonials completely, uh, beginning to end, at, if you want to. But we also weaved in throughout the course pieces, snippets of those videos that related to the topic you're reading about in that moment. And that allowed for not just the information you're getting on that module, but then one or two of those lawyers discussing that very issue in their own lives, which made it much more real. And, and we were very proud of that and we're still proud of it. And we very much encourage as many people as would wish to, to, to take that course. I think it's cba.org slash wellness. I think that might be the, the website. I'll put a, a link to, um, to the program in the show notes. I know I had a bit of difficulty myself trying to get to it. So I think I found the actual, the link that'll take you right to it. But, right. um, yeah, yeah. And then the other thing about those, uh, testimonials and the snippets is that you see the same, if you've watched them in their entirety and then you see the little snippets that relate to the particular topic, it's like a reminder. It's like, oh, yeah, I remembered, you know, when Orlando was talking about this or Steve was talking about that or Rebecca was talking about this. Like it just sort of reinforced that that message in a very, uh, very gentle way. And the other thing that I found very impressive is that list of selected uh, readings, uh, bibliography at the end. It was like so long and it was really comprehensive. In some ways, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking, I imagine that someone coming to it for the first time, my experience of the, of the topic of mental health and well-being in the legal profession has been that it was a topic that was just skirted. It, it has been a topic that people have avoided, especially in mixed company, for fear of being looked upon a certain way, for fear of being judged. And because of that, when one then approaches a course like this and starts reading this, they realize there's a wealth of information, there's a wealth of understanding, there's a wealth of compassion, uh, and and that for many people is very new. It's a revelation, mm-hmm. um, and and that's part of why it's so compelling to me is that you actually kind of pull a curtain and open a window. Mm-hmm. It allows light in. We have this new way of looking at it that is not simply deal with it yourself, hide, don't show vulnerability. There's nothing that can help you other than your own bootstraps it turns out that's not the case and that's where a course like that i think is is can be very very helpful yeah agree agree yeah i highly recommend um anyone as you say even non-cba members uh, can take the course i highly recommend it uh, and, you know, it's interesting because that's sort of the one side um, of the sort of mental health issue that's been getting a lot more attention. And that's sort of what can individuals do um, to, you know, help themselves either prevent um, them falling into um, some of these difficult situations or when they are there, what can they do to help themselves? So a couple of findings that are on the other side, in my view, is that there are the pressure associated with a billable hour model, uh, the finding that that's having a, a highly negative impact on mental health. I'm trying to use the words from the um, from the study, and also the emotional demands of clients being the risk factor with the most significant impact on the mental health of legal professionals. Mm-hmm. So, talking to you know seeking help doing some of these, following some of these self-help resources, wouldn't address those issues. I was just wondering if you can comment, first of all, on those findings, and then maybe some of the recommendations to to address those findings. 
it's a really good observation because so much of, you know, as the mental health conversation has evolved over the years and opened up, it has still in the end, mostly focused on the individual's responsibility for self-care, get enough sleep, take your vacations, have boundaries. And all of these are legitimate and important. And I've been a proponent of all of them. And they are only part of the conversation. There's lots and lots of situations where, you know, law firms will do wellness talks for people and have, you know, fresh apples in the fridge, but they still expect 1800 hours a year billable, right? So the, the lawyer is still not really going to be able to leave their desk to go get an apple or do some yoga because uh, the context in which they work is still not conducive to being a human. And so uh, part of the focus we try to emphasize is it's not just the individual responsibility. It's not just individual resilience and boundaries and, and disconnecting from work. It's also that the workplaces that people work in have systemic issues that need to be addressed. The billable hour is one of those examples because for a lot of people, especially that, and the recommendation was for the first two years of practice, because people are just getting their feet wet and they're already being required to meet these obligations. Uh, and in varying with varying degrees of mentorship and leadership and training. Uh, and that causes, uh, you know, disproportionate distress for the individuals. There's lots of things that cause disproportionate distress. You mentioned client stress, but there's also colleague stress. If you've got just one senior lawyer who likes to, to take their frustration out on you sometimes, uh, that can you know ruin the entire experience of working there. Uh, if you've got a department that doesn't run well or isn't well-resourced, and you're, you end up doing a lot of work that uh, a, a clerk should have done because the clerk it isn't, isn't properly trained in your area... Uh, or isn't, uh, you know, as good at their job as, at their job as they need to be. And the firm is not addressing that. Well, the individual ends up having to deal with that, even though it's the firm's responsibility. So there are a lot of systemic issues. There are systemic issues, frankly, around diversity, uh, around, um, the, 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 the variable treatment of people. Part of the statistics we, we saw in the, in the study was around certain uh, equity seeking groups and their heightened distress by virtue of the way they are treated in workplaces, whether they be uh, black people, uh, indigenous people, LGBTQ plus people, uh, people who are still being othered in our profession. And the profession sometimes says the right things about that, but then doesn't, when the rubber meets the road, make the changes necessary to make sure that the workplace is inclusive. And that isn't just an EDI conversation. That's a mental health conversation because those people are suffering. And to put, to tie it back into running a good practice, that's not good for business. That's not good for the retention of talent. So it's not just that it's the right thing to do and it's the moral thing to do. It is also the smart business thing to do. But the profession is catching up to that. It's starting to realize it, perhaps because of the pandemic, because of, you know, uh, quiet quitting and the great resignation and all the different terms we've, we've heard. There are a lot of people who are not putting up with that treatment in the way they may, they may have in the past because the pandemic taught them uh, that there are uh, there are things you don't actually have to tolerate. There are things you can do differently. I mean, listen, my, I am now in private practice as a therapist and, um, I learned through the pandemic that I could do therapy by video 
just as effectively as I could in person. And I would have never learned that as, as deeply as I did had I not been working from home throughout the pandemic. And so now I can operate a private practice from my home and do it well and, uh, and have satisfied uh, clients. The pandemic taught us a lot of things. And it's taught a lot of people in the legal profession things about what they do or don't have to do to, to put up with. Yeah. And I'm thinking also from the sort of management side of the law firms, it sure um, been lots of changes. And yet a lot of firms are now requiring their lawyers to be working in the office five days a week, as opposed to, you know, starting off, let's start with one day, go up to two days, and it quickly became back to five days. So I don't know. (laughs) You know what, the smarter firms are learning that it that there's a balance to be to, to, to be struck. And I think the balance is that in many cases, there is real utility to having people see each other in the, in the same room, to feel their energy, to, uh, to interact with them one-on-one or one-on-ten, uh, feeling uh, that presence in the room. There is something to it. There is something to it in terms of feeling like you belong, feeling like you're part of a team, et cetera, which is harder to do when you're disconnected in little Zoom windows. But the, the balance is that that doesn't have to be back to 100%. And that has to be in many ways instructed by the needs of the organization as tempered by the preferences of the individual. And the more we can listen to the preferences of the individual, uh, to their need for autonomy, to their unique needs, some are more introverted, some are more extroverted, some work well in group settings, some work well when they're on their own. The more organizations trust their people to let them know what will make them most effective, uh, including making sure the organization gets what it needs, I think those are the most effective organizations. Right. And how do we get there when I don't, well, perhaps having gone through the pandemic experience and having the sort of results of this study out there, people being a little bit more vocal about what their needs are. Including the impact on the market. Right. Ultimately, it'll be market-driven. Firms are going to, firms that don't catch up uh, are going to lose talent. And that's very expensive for law firms and it's unnecessary, but they're learning that. Uh, a lot of them are really adjusting well. A lot of them are a little bit slower. And I say firms, I don't just mean private firms. I mean, you know, government departments and even academic departments uh, and, and in-house uh, organizations. The market, as much as uh, it has its, it has its faults and it acts way too slowly, in the end, it is for some organizations the most um, uh, the most persuasive thing, if they learn the lessons from it, that spurs change. And for a firm that really doesn't know where to start, like what are, what are some of the things that you're seeing? Um, I, I assume you know part of the study was you'd mentioned that there are some firms that are doing things differently, um, mm-hmm. and so part of the study data would have given you that information. But I imagine too, in your practice, you're hearing. Uh, or maybe not, maybe the, the lawyers that are seeking out your help are in those firms that haven't changed. But um, yeah, I guess bottom line, my question is, yeah, what are some of the things that, um, you know, firms are doing or organizations or government departments are doing? There are the things like speaking openly, like having leaders 
who are much more transparent about their own humanity, about their own vulnerability. They're not just set up as the these archetypes of perfection. Uh, leaders who speak openly about challenges they've had, about their own struggles with perfectionism and how perfection is not what the organization is after, excellence is. Um, leaders that are also kind and compassionate, and that doesn't mean that they're doormats, and it doesn't mean that they will put they will just tolerate any behavior by by members of the organization, but it does mean that they aren't uh, harsh and cruel, which does exist. It means that they're open. They can be open and still have boundaries. I, your your position can still be um, can still have certain necessary elements that must be carried out in the course of your doing your job. And if you have some challenges that get in the way of you doing that. Um, we are still going to insist that your job needs to be done, but how can we help you get there? We also know how great you are. We also know how talented you are. And if you're struggling, we want to help you get back to a level of functioning that allows you to be as great as you are, because that's why we hired you. And we will help in any way that we can, and we will do it non-judgmentally. Um, so that's one of the things is or leaders have to not just give lip service to mental health and well-being they actually have to embody it they have to model it every single day that includes workload management that includes maintaining civility in the workplace that includes the flexibility we discussed around work arrangements and work from home and flexible work arrangements and job sharing in certain firms um so there's there's some examples of what some of the organizations are doing uh Ultimately, if I was going to boil it down to one thing, law firms, in-house firms, etc., if they operate solely on the profit motive, they're going to end up with an unwell workforce. If they operate first and foremost on the premise that the, that they are working with human beings, people who need to have fulfilling lives and to be around kindness and compassion, and also have high expectations and high demands because we want people to excel. And people le- le- people who join the legal profession aren't looking for cushy jobs. They're looking for challenges. They're looking for intellectual stimulation. But they're looking for it uh, humanely. And they're looking for it uh, with kindness. And so if you start by just looking at your operation and saying, is this an operation built for humans? Or is it an operation built for robots? Uh, and if it's the latter, you should probably do something about that. I'm simplifying it to the nth degree because I actually want to illustrate how it is so much about is the ethos of the organization rooted in the humanity of its people. Yeah. What you're saying is it's not the first time we're hearing this. And I guess I'm sort of frustrated after having read the recommendations Um no big surprises and no sort of earth shattering. Wow, what a great idea. Um, this is really addressing the core or some of the core issues that we know have been around for a long time. So, I mean, ultimately, the study recommendations, how do they support what you've just said? And how do, would they encourage firms to start to look, look at things a little, in a little a more humane way, as you've described? Well, they are they are meant to, um, and and I won't recount the recommendations because they're myriad. But uh, they are meant to approach things from the perspective of, as I said, is the well being of our people a priority? 
So are we making sure that their workload is managed? Are we making sure that they have good mentorship? Are we making sure that they could have good education starting in law school? I mean, the, the study mentions uh, that it, this needs to start in law school, that wellness education needs to be part of the law school curriculum, uh, not just as a, a niche course at the University of Ottawa as one exists uh, that Linda Collins does, or as, as, as a, a mindfulness course that, the, that Professor Telfer does at, at Western. These need to be weaved into the regular curriculum, professionalism curriculum. So many of the recommendations are about the humanization of law, accounting for the fact that the work being done is being done by people, by humans who are vulnerable, who have challenges, who are diverse, um, and so uh, the recommendations are really designed to uh, humanize law practice as much as possible. And listen, as much as there it's a lot of things that we've seen before, the truth is the recommendations are made because they're not actually implemented, because the profession has been creeping little by little in a direction. And it's meant to set some, some, uh, some bars for us to, to reach for. Uh, in a number of different areas of, of, of practice, um, it's aspirational in many ways. And that tells you that as much as it seems like a lot of these things are things we've heard before, they're also things that in the end are not actually being implemented uh, widely. So uh, we still have some work to do on this. Yeah. So who is, would you say is responsible for you know, getting that work started? Oh, it's all over. It's it's uh, it's law school um, faculty and um, and administration. Uh, it is uh, law societies themselves in the way they regulate. Uh, it is um, uh, employers, uh, whether they be law firm, large, small, uh, whether they be um, uh, insurance companies with in-house departments, whether they be academic organizations, whether they be government organizations, leaders who are responsible for setting policy, for setting uh, demands on their employees, for setting workplace cultures, uh, are, I think, where it starts. It starts with people with the power to make change, implement change, and, and, and carry it forward. They need to make it a priority. The, the, in my observation of the conversation of mental health over the last couple of decades, it has evolved over time to the point now where uh, it has been a niche conversation, uh, an interesting sidelight. Oh, and by the way, we've just discussed all of these substantive law issues, and here's one panel in our conference on, uh, on setting boundaries. Uh, but it was always kind of niche. It was always an interesting sidelight, relatively well attended because the lawyers themselves were really interested in the topic and probably wanted more of it. Uh, what we need to do now is fold it into law practice as an essential part of it, not just a niche. That everything we do every day includes considerations of the needs of the individuals and not just, you know, what is the best outcome of this matter. Yeah, and, I'm, and I understand you are out um, making presentations to firms um, and there are others as well who are passionate about these particular issues. So, yeah, as you say, it's just things move at such a slow pace <laughs> in this profession. It's just oh, so frustrating. So you frustrating. Know what? Things move at a slow pace in this species. <laughs> We're not big on change. 
uh, we're big on this is the way things have always been. This is what I had to go through. So you should have to go through it too. There's a lot of skepticism about some of these changes by very high level people, uh, by people in power, a lot of skepticism about um, that. These are just, you know, airy fairy, you know, uh, ideas that are, you know, eroding the, the, the meritocratic base of, of the legal profession. Um, I, I think that's ridiculous, but I understand why, you know, established interests, why legacy interests uh, want to keep things the way they are and believe those things to be right. We like to be right, uh, which is why we have to incrementally move, move the needle incrementally, little at a time. I don't know why I'm so patient about this because I think it's really urgent, but I guess if I've done it as long as I've done it and I've seen as much progress as has been made, I guess I, I remain hopeful because I know that a lot of progress has been made. And even though it's been slow and incremental, the direction is the right direction. That's a good point. That's a good point. I think we just sort of, you know, we're looking at today and where we think, you know, where, where the ultimate goal is. And it just seems like such an incredibly large gap. But you're right. We've come, we've come pretty far. Uh, I'm just wondering if the sort of second phase of the study um, will provide more targeted recommendations, or again, are we going to be enforced from some broad, um, you know, this, these are some of the general ideas, but is there going to be anything more specific, targeted, do you think? I'm not sure if there's recommendations coming after, after this or if it's more data-driven, so I can't speak to that. I will say that I actually found the recommendations um, to be relatively targeted. It's just that you have to think about it in terms of how are we reaching as many people as we can. Uh, when we get very targeted, we start to exclude because we're talking about a very narrow workforce or a very narrow um, type of law uh, and things that they can do. And that might be something that is done down the road when we have to really drill down on some of these things. But the idea right now, given how slow this boat is moving, is to set some general, but I think a lot of very specific recommendations around this is the direction we need to go. These are some of the changes we need to make. These are some of the curriculum changes that a law school needs to make. These are some of the uh, specific things you need to do around the billable hour in your law firm. Uh, these are some of the specific recommendations we have around mentorship, systematic men mentorship in organizations. And uh, I think if you leave it general enough, you allow for a lot of people to see themselves in it and perhaps hopefully to embrace it as a result. Yeah, and also hopefully people will read the whole report because as you were mm -hmm. saying, you encourage people at the beginning of our discussion to do that. And there is a lot more in there than um, sort of the, the um, sort of FAQs that have come out or the summary, the executive summaries of the findings and the recommendations. So um, yeah, maybe we need to be focusing a little bit more on some of the detailed stuff because yeah, if you just read the communiques, it's very general, very general. Oh, the, the the study itself is comprehensive. I mean, it's 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 long. Some people, you know, have taken a while to get through it because there's so much in there. Um, it's worth it. It's really interesting. If you're interested in this in this subject matter, it's so interesting to see, you know, specific data. And part of the reason why we did this is because there was data from the United States from 2015, 16. We didn't have Canada-specific data, and I think that was the reason why CBA and, and Federation of Law Societies 
got involved in this because there really was a need for Canada-specific data. And while we were doing it, we had the ability to also include things they didn't include. We included articling students. Um, we added specific questions related to, to COVID and the pandemic and the impact that that has had. There's a lot of really good detail about the experiences of being in the legal profession at this time in history. I think it helps us understand ourselves. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and read it a little bit more closely as well, because with that, seeing it through that lens of, yeah, we've come pretty far and yeah, we still have far to go, but also, yeah, we've, we've come pretty far. So um, yeah, to try to just be a little bit more positive, because I have to say, I was so negative when I read, oh, no, you know, nothing's new here. But um, anyway, Doron, thank you so much for, yeah, sort of shedding all that light on, um, on the report and the study. I'm just wondering if there's anything that you think that we should sort of add to our discussion that might be helpful for listeners. What I would like everyone to do, and this is just the therapist in me, right? I would like everyone to periodically check in with themselves and what the conversation in their own mind is. What is the nature of the conversation? Is it judgmental and harsh? Is it kind and compassionate? Uh, what are the voices in our head telling us? Are they scolding us and criticizing us? Or are they comforting us and being kind to us? And being kind doesn't mean tolerating any behavior. It just means treating ourselves the way we would treat a loved one, the way we would treat one of our children. Um, and I think that's always really central to uh, a conversation about mental health, starting with uh, what's the conversation in my head? What is the nature and the tenor of the conversation in my head? And this is where therapy is really helpful because often people don't even realize what that conversation is until they're talking to a therapist and the therapist points out, boy, you're using some really harsh words to describe yourself, aren't you? Have you ever noticed that? Um, and that's one of the real pleasures of the work that I do is, is that I, I get to help people see what's getting in their way that they, they sometimes didn't even realize was getting in their way, um, that, that they sometimes feel that uh, being hard on themselves is what got them where they are. Um, and being a perfectionist is, is, is what leads to success and all of these fallacies, uh, because being hard on yourself generally erodes your self-esteem and it weakens you. Uh, you can have high standards and still be kind to yourself. You can do both. And I, in, in, in my work as a therapist, I'm, I'm emphasizing that all the time. Um, and by the way, if anyone uh, wants to reach out, I'm easy to find them at the, the lawyertherapist.ca or the lawyer therapist at gmail.com. Anybody wants to reach out to ask any questions or, uh, or even for, you know, speaking engagements and such, I'm here. Terrific. Terrific. Well, that's a real comfort. Um, and yeah, and, and I really appreciate you coming back to discuss uh, the report and just, just generally mental wellness uh, in the legal profession with me on the podcast. So thank you so much, Doran. Always a pleasure, Shelly. Thank you for having me back. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.